If you went to the ladies' Christmas brunch and you're missing a set of silverware, I probably have it. So I've been carrying it thinking, where do I announce this? So if you know, if this is yours or if it's a friend who said to you, I lost a whole set of silverware, this is it. So come on down if it is. Otherwise, I guess I'll just stick it back in my purse. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. <laughs> Okay, it's fun to be here. This is our third week looking into the detailed laws that God's children were to take into the promised land. And today we're going to look at laws regarding leadership in the land. And uh, probably over two million people would be taking possession of God's gift of the promised land. But think about it. Moses has always been with them. Moses will not be with them. He is their gifted leader. He is sort of their mainstay. He will not be there. And then they're going to go to all their different territories. They'll be scattered throughout the land. And three tribes, Reuben, Gad, and Manasseh, would be uh, find their territory across the Jordan. So you picture them standing there looking into this land thinking, who is going to help us? How are we going to have our laws enforced? How are we going to stay united? How are we going to settle differences in our tribes and differences between our tribes? What's going to happen to us once we get into this land that God is so excited to give us? And what you're going to see and hear me say throughout this little lecture is, God is so gracious and loving he had a plan just like he had a plan for Israel from the very beginning for their blessing for their health for their spiritual growth for them to be filled and be prosperous and to be a nation that joyfully celebrates the love of God and they do that worshiping together but God knew when they got in the promised land this was going to be an issue so we had a plan so they could continue to be blessed when I was working on this lesson it sort of reminded me a little bit about um, a church when I was in high school I came to Christ as a ninth grader and right on the corner of my street in the middle of this subdivision was a church and it was a Christian Missionary Alliance sweet sweetest man uh, that was the pastor there teeny church but I kind of got involved and started teaching Sunday school and did that a couple years as a high school kid and then I noticed that this sort of small group of people started attending the church and I noticed the worship services started changing And now that I'm a grown-up, I can realize they came in with their own plan and their own agenda for this sweet little church. And so pretty soon, sort of the head of the group started getting permission to give some of the sermons. And the spirit was not the same. And pretty soon I would notice that some of the things he said I didn't think were right and weren't really biblical and then his wife began saying God gave me a song last night and I get to sing it for you today every Sunday (laughs) now unfortunately God didn't give her the gift of singing (laughs) so you can imagine when you're a 10th and 11th grader and you're sitting with your sister and we're trying not to laugh the whole time because (laughs) 
She could not sing, and we would think, I wish God would just tell her to sing those songs in her closet or in the shower or something. But these people, uh, thinking they were following God, were in reality destroying a sweet fellowship that had been walking and abiding by the principles of God. And eventually, I just saw more and more things happen, and um, I ended up leaving. Everyone else I knew left. It was sort of a shambles of what it once was. And then that group picked themselves up and started another church somewhere else. And I thought, why, why did that happen? And I really think because there was a lack of strong and godly leadership in that little church. They weren't directing, they weren't discerning, they weren't pursuing um, just what God would have be done in that fellowship. And so there was a lot of spiritual bruising done because of that. This is just an example of one church. You can imagine without godly leadership, all the shambles it could leave a nation that's supposed to be walking with God. That's how important it would be. So God's plan for Israel's government would be unique from all the other nations. On your outline, it would be a theocracy. Theo meaning God. The spiritual leaders of the country would be the political leaders of the country. And I was trying to kind of wrap my arms around that. It's really hard for us to envision what that would be like. And so I said... Uh, to Ted, I said, would this be an accurate thought? It would be a little bit like a robbery going on at the Montgomery Street Antique Mall. And they capture this guy who's a thief, and they say, we're taking you across the street to the church. And we're going to gather the pastors together, and they're going to pronounce your sentence and pass judgment on you. That would be what the government would be like in Israel. We can't figure that out. If our pastors had an opinion about someone robbing, they might think that's a good opinion, but you have absolutely no authority to do anything beyond stating your opinion. In Israel, um, the, the godly spiritual leaders had the authority to pronounce judgment and allow for God's goodness and presence to continue to be a part of justice in their land. Religious law and civil law were one. They were both embraced by the covenant stipulations. Yahweh God was to be the exclusive source of all authority, be political, be spiritual, be social. God would be both God and king. And for that reason, God's laws would be the laws on your outline that made applications of justice. So a priest could make a judgment on an offense or a prophet or a godly judge or official. And it would be important that those who would be the leaders in Israel would be those who follow the lead of God. So look at Deuteronomy 16 with me. Verse 18, appoint judges and officials for each of your tribes in every town the Lord your God has given you, and they shall judge the people fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. Follow justice and justice alone, so you may live and possess the land the Lord your God has given you. 
And don't set up any wooden Asherah pole beside the altar you build to the Lord your God. And do not erect a sacred stone, for these the Lord your God hates. Okay, in those first verses, we can see that the basic unit of government in Israel would be the local town council. And it's very possible that the judges in that local town council were some of the elders in that uh, area. And the officials or the officers would assist the judges. And uh, the term official actually means here writer. So we know that somehow they would also record the sentences, record the genealogies of the people. They would assist the judges in executing whatever judgment they ended up making. So on your outline, here's how that looked. God would be the supreme legislator of the land. The local judges formed the judicial branch of the government, and their officers constituted the executive branch. And we read in these verses, the judge's job was to judge the people fairly. Another better translation is to judge them with righteous judgment. And the word righteous there means with what is right. Every citizen had rights according to the law. It was up to the judge to make sure that they got to um, have their rights and that people were punished that tried to take away their rights. This was usually done at the city gates. I guess we can think about like the square on Granbury or Waxahachie where you could imagine in its heyday people just all hanging out there. In the um, towns back then, you walked through a city gate and there would actually be the judges sitting. There would be places for them and they were doing business. They were judging and making assessments and doing that right at the entrance to the gates. Uh, the most important thing about the judges and officials was that they possessed a godly character. And they list four things that would show that they were godly here. It reminded me of, I had the joy of getting to go to Italy a couple years ago. And I was in Venice and we went into their government building, which was unbelievable. It, it was almost as big as this room beautiful but but the tour guy was explaining how they went to huge elaborate details for every little act in government because they did not trust men so if you came and you had an agenda you were going to push your person into a position in government you had to like pick a ball that had a number on it And then you never knew if they were even going to call on you that day. So no one could plan ahead. And they would take those balls and they would roll them around and they would pick one. And you'd think, man, I didn't get my guy in there and I I didn't have time to get everybody to vote the way I wanted. Because you never knew which ball was going to be picked at what time of what day. I thought it was pretty ingenious. And then if you decided, I have something bad to say about someone that's holding an office, they had a box where you would write your um, comment, your criticism, and put it in the box. But then they went to this elaborate detail. You couldn't do it while anyone was watching. It had a lock on it. And then only a certain person had the key to unlock it, and they had to bring two people with them when they unlocked it. In case they opened the box and it was talking about their Uncle George... And they just conveniently lost that comment. So there were all these 
really kind of amazing, elaborate steps they took because they did not trust men. The people of Israel had to trust the judges and the officials that they were men of character. So here's the four things on your outline if you want to write them in. They were not to pervert or distort judgment. They would do this by twisting the law to their advantage, if that's what they were going to do. They were not to show partiality. In Hebrew, the word partiality means to regard faces. And what that means is they were supposed to be looking at not who the person was, but what the person did, instead of regarding the face. You can imagine if a judge did regard the face, and all of a sudden... He sees Harry coming for judgment, and he thinks, Harry's donkey ate my barley. I am going to judge really harshly today. Or maybe you have a dear friend come up, Stan, and you think, Stanley's wife baked us barley cookies. I'm going to judge him very lightly today. The judge was expected to regard the sin and not the face of the individual that they brought in. Thirdly, they should not accept a bribe. I love what they say in this verse. It's in other places in the Bible. A bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the righteous. In other words, a bribe turns a good person bad. When you think about justice, remember the statue. It's a woman who's got a blindfold on and she's carrying scales that are balanced on her back. When a bribe comes along, it's sort of like that woman lifts up that blindfold a little too long staring at that bribe, and pretty soon those plates of justice get tipped and are incorrect now, and she's off balance. A bribe is a gift that can tip that scale of justice in their favor. In fact... Who do you think of when we're thinking about this? I immediately thought of the wonderful government in Illinois. (laughs) Is he not the perfect example? Regarding faces, showing partiality, looking for a bribe. But then I thought, it's also, though, an example of how the government God puts into place for our good because guess what? He's not the governor anymore because there was a system that found this out and got him out of that position. That's a protection from God. In verse 20, God is telling them, if you follow this just way that I have planned for you, you will have health, you will have goodness in the land, you will have prosperity in the land. It's also a warning that if you do not do it, you will have chaos and trouble in the land. And we know years later, Israel veered from God's plan, his perfect plan, beginning with these courts in the local towns. So the health of the country was damaged. The economy was damaged. The corrupt people began accepting bribes, which allowed the rich to take over. The rich began to take land that was not theirs. The poor people became poorer. Land was stolen. The result was Israel's land was taken from them, and they were taken into captivity. And I thought it was interesting. All of a sudden, you're reading about the political system, and then he says, starts talking about worship. Now, don't set up worship items next to the altar. And 
it just should remind us how connected religious life is with the political life in Israel. They're not just going from government to look at religion. God is both God and king. The principles that apply to religious practices also apply to civil practices. And so it's not strange that all of a sudden, when they're talking about Israel's leadership, they start to talk about Israel's worship. It's our fourth requirement for a godly court. They were to uphold devotion to God and God alone. Look at verses 21 again. Do not set up any wooden asherah pole beside the altar you build to the Lord your God. Do not erect a sacred stone for your God hates this. Idolatry was the great enemy of Israel. We've been talking about that. It would crush them spiritually. It would crush them ultimately politically. And the judges had to be uh, love God enough to be looking for false worship in the land. And they had to be courageous enough to do something about it. The translation really in um, some of the original text where it says don't build an um, a wooden asherah pole. What it really says is do not plant trees in the grove beside an altar of the Lord. The groves were where pagan worship happened, partially because they would grow trees and often they would pick a particular tree to represent the goddess Asherah. So if they planted a grove next to the altar of God, they might also have this Asherah Goddess, who's the mother of 70 other gods, the fertility goddess, and also a stone pillar they might erect, which would represent uh, Baal. He, he sort of went along with her. The idolaters tried to locate these groves close to the places of worship of the Lord, hoping to encourage people to sort of mix their worship. You're in here, come over here, you do it this way, this is what we're doing. And you can see how effective that would be. Because guess what? The worship of the pagans was sensual. It was mystical. It was emotional. It was physical. And it wouldn't take long for someone who maybe had a loyalty to the true God to be enticed into this kind of false worship. In fact, later in the days of the kings, they would sometimes find items used in idol worship in the temple. Now think about that. Think about finding something like that in Christ's chapel alone, what that would feel like. But in the dwelling place of God? And it made me think back um, of a story when David was king and uh, the Ark of the Covenant was stolen by the Philistines and they had it. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know what to do with it. They just knew Israel liked it. So they placed it one night in one of their idol temples next to their idol Dagon and they go to bed. They wake up the next morning. There is their God lying flat down before the Ark of the Covenant on its face. So they think, 
wonder what happened. They pick him up, they set him back up, they go to bed, they wake up, they come in the next morning. Now he's lying in front of the Ark of the Covenant with his head gone and his hands gone, neatly placed before the Ark of the Covenant of the living God. You cannot mix those two things. One God is true and powerful and mighty. It was the judge's job to investigate these practices of idolatry, condemn the guilty, remove the idols from the land. Yahweh was Israel's God, and Yahweh alone, no mixing with gods that were no gods at all. Look at verse 1 of 17. Do not sacrifice to the Lord your God an ox or a sheep that has any defect or flaw in it, for that would be detestable to him. Maybe you've heard the story of a church that sent their missionaries slightly used tea bags. You know, I'm thinking that maybe some urban missionary legend, but <laughs> like the urban legends. But if that were true, it gives us some insight into this verse. Where is the honor due the Almighty God? Never were they to a sacrifice to be used to get rid of sick and defective animals. It let us know that the heart of the worshiper was sick and defective as well. And if we look in the book of Malachi, Malachi is describing, through God is doing it through Malachi, all the sins of Israel that he must judge. At the top of the list is this practice of bringing the sickly, the defective, the weak animals for sacrifice to the holy, mighty God of Israel. In fact, look on your verse sheet. We'll look at it. God says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due to me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you ask, have we shown contempt? You place defiled food on my altar. When you bring blind animals to be sacrificed, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice crippled or diseased animals, is that not wrong? When you bring injured, crippled, or diseased animals and offer them as a sacrifice, should I accept them from your hands? Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, and my name is to be feared among the nations. The judges should uphold the honor due God's name. Now, what if the cases were too difficult for these judges in the local town councils that had to deal with death and murder and other things like that. So God knew that. God had another plan in his grace and his love. Deuteronomy 17, let's look at verse 8. If cases come before your courts that are too difficult for you to judge, whether bloodshed, lawsuits, or assaults, take them to the place the Lord your God will choose. Go to the priests who are Levites and to the judge who was in office at that time. Inquire of them and they will give you the verdict. God's plan was a central sanctuary that he would establish and it would be the highest tribunal in the land. The highest um, place for judgment. And the priests and the officiating chief judge would make judgments according to the law of God. 
And I want to remind you that the priests were descendants of Levi, but specifically descendants of um, Aaron, who was Moses' brother. The other Levites were also descendants of Levi, and they helped in the tabernacle, but they were also spread throughout the land, teaching the laws, studying the laws, being spiritual leaders. Since God's law was national law, there was no one better able to interpret and apply the law than these Levites and these priests. This sanctuary court, I want us to make sure we know, was not like our Supreme Court. This wasn't a second try, someone saying, I appeal to the central sanctuary court. No, these cases were not tried before. The local town would say, we got to send this to the central sanctuary because it's too difficult for us. They also weren't just an advisory board. Here's what we think you should do. No. What they said was what was to happen and what to take place. They, the words they use in these verses are, the court tried these cases carefully. Their decision was authoritative. Their decision was binding. And if anybody showed contempt for their decision, it was as if they were showing contempt to God himself. Because these decisions were considered an expression of the mind of God. They presented this decision before God, so they were divinely sanctioned as well. And so these verses tell us, the rebellious person must die. You must purge the evil from the land. And when that happens, others will sit up and take notice and decide not to rebel against the words that come from God through the priests. I read this quote from Woodrow Wilson, a past president, that I thought was interesting. He said, There's many problems before the American people today and before me as president, but I expect to find the solution of those problems just in the proportion that I'm faithful in the study of the Word of God. This was the task of the priests and the chief judge in the central sanctuary of Israel. So this is God's plan. Israel's leadership would be under his leadership. This would be a theocracy. It would bring health and blessing to his treasured possession. But we're going to see that God knows the heart of his people. And so another kind of government would be born, not from the desire of God's heart, but from the desires of the stubborn people of God. Look at verse 14 in chapter 17. When you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us set a king over us like the other nations around us. God was the king of Israel. The law was the cement that united the tribes and the people of Israel. I want us to... um, read part of a song that Moses and Miriam wrote. They have just witnessed the most unbelievable thing, one of the most unbelievable things they would ever witness. They had an army of Egyptians chasing them. They stood on the shore of the Red Sea and saw that sea part in half for them. They ran across these huge, vast amounts of people. 
got to the other side and saw the Red Sea close over and the Egyptians who were chasing them. They are on their first steps of their journey into the promised land. And look what they say. Exodus. On your verse sheet. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Who is like you? Majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders. In your unfailing love, you will lead the people you've redeemed. In your strength, you will guide them to your holy dwelling. The people of Canaan, they'll melt away. You will bring the people in and plant them on the mountain of your inheritance, the place, O Lord, you made for your dwelling, the sanctuary your hands established. You will reign forever and ever. These are words of people who understand God is our king. But now that they're there, this new generation says, we want a king like all the other nations. We want a monarchy. We want to be like everybody else. Even though their distinctness lay in the fact that they weren't like everyone else. They were a kingdom of priests. They were a holy nation. Look at Numbers 23. A prophet said, From the rocky peaks I see them. From the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. But turning their eyes from the might of their true king, they begin to focus in fear on the might of the Canaanite nations around them. And so they want a man, a man who looks like a king, a man who's strong, a man who they think because he looks strong, he'll bring us into victory. He'll fight our battles for us. Totally forgetting the song of Moses and Miriam. God knew this. God allowed this, but again, we see his love because he sets the parameters. Okay, if you want a king, let me tell you what he has to be because guess what? If if this isn't the requirements of the king, it's not going to work. God says he has to be a leader that I choose. He has to be an Israelite. He must put his trust in God, not in horses, Not in alliances with nations through marrying women. Not in wealth. Not in armies. And it's real hard. You probably did the same thing I did when you read those verses. What king immediately came to your mind? King Solomon. First king we have is King Saul. Why? Because he was the tallest guy that they could find. A tall, big guy that they thought, here's our king. And God allowed him to be king to chastise the people for rejecting him as their king. Then God chooses King David, the best king they ever had, the man after God's own heart. But David's son Solomon started out following the ways of his father, but he built this entire wealthy nation. Everything God's saying in his requirements not to do is what he did. In fact, he even went to Egypt to get more horses. And that was another rule. No going back where I took you out of. He went back to Egypt to get wives, to get horses. Um, I read about a man who visited someplace um, where he would actually have, Solomon had chariot cities. He had so many horses. He had a cities of stables that were just his horses. He had more wives than he probably ever met. He probably didn't know half his wives. 
He was wealthy in silver and gold. And sure enough, just like God knew, his leadership became weakened. He was enticed by the gods of his foreign wives. And he gave in to the ways of the world around him. And we see after that in all the history of Israel, the good kings were very few and far between. But on your outline, the king of God's choosing would be devoted to God's words so he would revere and obey the Lord carefully. I love that verse we read because it says he would copy the law. He would get it from the priests, copy his own um, copy of it, carry it on him. And not only did he just carry it for show, God says he must read it every day of his life. And then he says, and if he does that, he will be a humble man because he'll be reminded. We learned what humility is. He'll be reminded of who he is in light of who I am. And he won't think of himself as any better than all this nation of people that he's leading. But what happens when these kings do not follow these requirements? What happens when the people of God are without godly leaders? And we know from history that they will adopt the ways of the pagan nations around them, including how they want to get direction and guidance. Look at verse 9 in chapter 18. When you enter the, the land the Lord your God has given, you do not learn to imitate the detestable ways of the nations there. Let no one be found among you who sacrifices his son or daughter in the fire, who practices divination or sorcery, interprets omens, engages in witchcraft or casts spells, or who is a medium or spiritist or anyone who consults the dead. These things are detestable to God. So here we see another way God says, okay, I can do this, and this can help Israel. If they turn away from all these things I've taught them, if they don't have godly judges, if the priests are evil, if the kings turn their back on the one true king, then I'm going to raise my own leaders, and they'll be called prophets. The will of God could be discovered through a prophet not a magician, not a spiritist, not an Ouija board, but through the prophet of God. Look at Jeremiah 1 about Jeremiah. God says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. People like Elijah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, people like Moses. So what would they look like? A prophet spoke the words of God, and that's why they almost always began by saying, this is what the Lord your God says. And here was their job. On your outline, God would raise his leaders to rebuke Israel for their sins, encourage Israel toward holy living, proclaim to Israel the coming of the Messiah. And he goes on to say, okay, here's how you deduce if someone's a true prophet or a false prophet. A false prophet would speak something God didn't tell them. A false prophet might speak in the name of another God. A false prophet would speak things that do not come true. Not just, they weren't correct just 80% of the time, 90% of the time, 99% of the time. 
100% of the time, what you spoke must be true. Then you were a prophet from God. In the next passages about the prophets, Moses explains how God would use prophets in the nation. But it's also a prophecy of the coming of the greatest prophet of ever. Look at verse 15 in chapter 18. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own brothers. You must listen to him. Jesus was called the very word of God. And we have the very words that he spoke with us still to this day. And as the superior prophet, we keep those words true in our hearts. God began speaking through his prophet Jesus the minute he was born in a little stable. We could hear God speaking truth through his son. On your outline, he's also the superior prophet because he alone is also priest and a king. Jesus fulfills all these roles. He's a prophet, he's a priest, he's a king. You can look at those verses in Hebrews and Revelations that talk about those roles that he fulfills. I wanted to go on and talk about leadership today. When I read through this, I just thought, God, you are so good. Every step of the way, he's planning things for their health and their joy and their happiness. Leadership today, he has done the same thing for you and I. And we can learn from the mistakes of Israel what we need to do to correctly approach leadership today in our lives. So I thought of five words. You might just want to write these words down. Israel did not submit to God's plans for theocracy. But we submit, that's a big word, we submit to the God-ordained leadership in our lives. In the church, God gives us leadership for the health of the body of Christ. And we submit to their leadership as they submit to the leadership of God. In our country, we submit to the government because God created it for our goodness, for good to be rewarded and for bad to be punished. Now, does it always work? No, because it's run by fallen men. We cannot blame God for bad government, but he is the authority and always will be of government. Our second word is support. Israel offered to their true king weak and meager offerings. And it displayed their weak devotion to him. We are to support the leadership in our lives, both in the church and in our country, in the church with our finances, with our prayers, with our words of encouragement. In the country, we honor our leaders. We pay our taxes. We vote. We pray for them. And we do all this support joyfully. Not bringing the least things we can bring. Not bringing our used tea bags. We do this in joy because guess what it reflects? Our deep, joyful devotion to our God. The third word is discern. We discern the leadership that is in our lives, in the country and in the church. This was the job of the priests and judges to interpret and apply the word of God. And that's what we should be doing. In the leadership in our lives. In the country, we vote accordingly. 
We, we look at things through the grid of the word of God. We refuse to participate in anything that goes against the will of God. In our country, we don't have to deal with that like these countries that are persecuted for having to take a stand against things that would go against what they knew God would call them to do. We get involved when we see wrong in our government. We get involved in a respectable manner. Someone came this morning to the teaching meeting and said, Hey, I've got this petition. They're going to pass this law. We have to be discerning to know what's going on and to be on top of it. God's called us to be those kinds of people in the church and in our uh, country. And in the church, we weigh the words of our pastors with the word of God. We hold them accountable to teaching the truth as the God's word shows us. When we also do that, we are discerning enough to discover when someone is a false teacher, when someone is a false leader. We have God's word. We've been in God's word. We read God's word every day. I can tell you are not a true teacher. We are discerning about our leadership. The fourth word is refuse. Israel wanted to look like the nations around them. So they changed their worship. They mixed it. Or they pursued popular methods of of seeking guidance like the pagan nations around them. We refuse to pursue false leadership from sources of people that are lost. They're unbelievers. We refuse to do that. We don't do those things because we want to fit in, because we want to look like everyone around us. We don't follow false leadership because it feels good. It's sensual. It's mystical. I get to touch something. We don't follow false leadership because we want to follow someone who looks like a dynamic king in our eyes. We are not enticed away from the true leadership of God. And finally, when we look at this fallen world we're in and we realize, oh my gosh, this fallen world is run by fallen people. Israel's basic problem all through Deuteronomy that we see can be summed up in one little sentence. They did not trust God. Everything they did, from worshiping false idols, from pursuing witchcraft, from marrying foreigners, was all an expression that they did not think God was big enough to take care of their enemies, to provide for them. It was a lack of trust, and so in their fear, they gave in to all these other things. Number five word, we trust in the leadership of our prophet and priest and king our Lord Jesus. We are never out of his hands. He is mighty. He is sovereign. He is powerful. And when we stop and sit up and think the world looks out of control, we have to remind ourselves he is the king of the world. If I panic and I become fearful, I will pursue the wrong things. So I'm going to trust in my king. In my priest, because I know every day my priest is praying for me. The Bible tells us that, interceding. And I know 
as my prophet, I can read his words and find truth in my heart. And I know as my king, the victory is his, and therefore, ultimately, the victory is mine. These were Jesus' words to his followers. John 14, bottom of your verse sheet. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful. We are grateful that you love us enough to bring um, order into our world, spiritually and politically, that we may follow you in freedom. I ask, Lord, for our country, for our government to seek you, to choose and judge according to your ways. I pray for this church to continue to lift up truth through your word. And we love you, Father. We thank you for choosing us to walk and follow you every day of our life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Lynn. Just one quick announcement before we leave. On your tables this morning were these green cards, and they explain a project.